Okay, we are now going to turn to the book of Luke. Uh, most of you will know that we've been looking at the book of Luke since last summer, and we'll continue to do so until next summer. We've been gradually working our way through it, but since it's Easter, our turning to the Easter story, and Dave's asked me to read the scripture for him this morning. So I'm going to start reading at the beginning of Luke chapter 24, and very nearly until the end. So it's quite a long chunk of text, but it is a good story. So it's a delight to be able to read it. Part of it covers the story that was read from the children's Bible at the start of the meeting, and then it goes on. So here we are in Luke chapter 24. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they'd prepared, And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna And Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they didn't believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now that very day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, Mighty indeed in word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we'd hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happen. And moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they didn't find the body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and and found it just as the women had said, but him they didn't see. 
And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so they drew drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed. And he's appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and touch my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while They still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. He said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Dave. I feel privileged this morning to teach on this topic. This is as good as it gets. Christ has risen. We want to look at what Luke has told us and what Steve has read. 
about how Christ rose, and we want, there's so much in this we could take literally, and I'm not exaggerating just to make a point, I'm saying it because it's true. We could take weeks and weeks on this text that Steve has just read for us because it's so multi-layered and rich. We're just going to pick three key points that I think are practical and things that we can take away and help us live for the Lord this week. Let's see if we're working here. What we're looking at, of course, he has risen. That's the great announcement of resurrection morning. Why it's good news. We're going to pick three. We could pick 300, but we'll stick with three. He has risen. Three reasons it's good news. One, it gives us a new place to start the race. Wasn't that clever? That rhymes. Did you catch that? It gives us a new place to start the race. We could do a rap. We won't do that right yet. Okay. Calm down, Danny. That's okay. The prophets, the Old Testament prophets held out for Israel the great hope that at the end of history, God would win over death. In God's world, according to the prophets, death would not have the last word. Have a look on your own, in your own time, Isaiah 26, Daniel 12. Jesus endorsed this hope. It was a controversial one in his day because there was a group called the Sadducees that didn't acknowledge this promise from the scriptures. The Sadducees didn't even believe the prophets. They just believed the law of Moses. But Jesus endorsed this hope of the prophets from Isaiah, Daniel, and many other places. And he himself said that he himself would raise us up when? On the last day. John chapter 6, verse 54. When Jesus' good friend Lazarus dies, Jesus comes to the tomb. Lazarus has by this point been buried. Jesus is talking and consoling Martha, one of Lazarus' sisters. And Martha says that she knows even in the midst of her grief, that her brother Lazarus will rise, quote, on the last day. Let's turn this platform this morning into a picture of the history of the world. Let's say here is creation. Here's the middle of history when God sent Christ And way down here, we haven't got yet, is the end of the age. The grand climactic moment. God will overcome death, establish his will and his purpose in the world, uncontested and unrivaled forever. Now this moment when the dead will be raised. Isaiah taught it, Daniel taught it, Jesus taught it. It comes at the end and it's God's way of saying I'm in charge, death is not. I get the last word because I'm God. That's coming at the end of the age. Question, what about Jesus rising? Where does that fit into what we've just looked at? Well, let's look at what the angel who comes to the tomb 
tells the women, remember, it's a key word in this text, remember. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. So, there's the last day, what Martha talks about relative to her brother, what Isaiah and Daniel talk about, that's the last day. But now all of a sudden we've got this other time frame, this time location called the third day. Like, to use jargon from today's culture, like what's up with that? What's up with the third day? Let me suggest that what's going on is this. You have the last day and then you have the third day. We could speculate why it was after three days. Could God have raised Jesus after two? Could he have rated to, rated to the fourth? I think God can do whatever he jolly well pleases because he's God. So that's an interesting discussion to have. All that I'll suggest this morning about this third day time frame is this. <clears throat> it contrasts with the time that it's going to be until that day over there. That's far in the future. But now Jesus says he's going to rise and the angel endorses it and now it's already happened. Jesus is going to rise not at the last day but just a few days after he dies. What's going on is this. It's just a few days after. Here is a way to help us visualize what's going on. Please stay with me here. We have to use our sanctified imagination a little bit. If what's going to happen at the end of the story is God's premier greatest act in history, it's up there with the exodus from Egypt, up there with Jesus' death and resurrection, well, at least equal to those things is the final transformation of heaven and earth that we get when Christ returns. It's the book of Revelation teaches it. 1 Corinthians 15 teaches it. All that's coming. What's going to happen then? There's going to be a very loud trumpet sound. The Lord himself will descend with a shout. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, in the twinkling of an eye, the dead will be raised. We will be changed, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Let me mention a, a piece of my story that I've mentioned on this platform before. It's very relevant in a message like this. In 1984, Velma and I lost a four-year-old daughter to cancer. It shattered us. We've recovered in measure. But you know, part of what sustains us is that on that day when the trumpet sounds, we get our daughter back. I love, I love that hope. Now, this is going to be something that there's nothing up to this point that really compares with it in scale and in scope and in magnitude. So think biggest thing God will have ever done. Just think of that biggest thing God will have ever done. Think that. Now, 
It's here at the end of the story. God, who's not limited to time, he can go back and forth, past, present, and future, and back again. He goes into the future. This is where you have to use your imagination. And he gathers up at least some of that power, a very sizable piece of it, and he brings it back into the middle of history to where there's a dead man in a tomb outside Jerusalem. And he releases some of that power here. Are you with me? He sends an angel to push the stone away. His son, because now the power that's going to raise all the dead at the end and now comes in the middle of history, not at the end, but in the middle and raises Jesus from the dead. So when the women get there, the angel has to say, sorry, ladies, you missed him. I thought that was funny. (laughs) It's the end of history, in the middle of history. Here's why this matters. The conquest of death is now behind us. In one sense, it's still out in front of us because lots of people still die. But the the power of death has already been broken. Sin, come on this. Sin is already dealt with because Christ has died. Whatever guilt issues you may be contending with, well, the Lord has dealt with it. That's what baptism is about, in part. Death is already beaten because Christ has risen. Now stay with this thought. It's all about hope of something yet to come, but also confidence in something that has come already. It's both. Resurrection is not just a future hope like a finish line to a journey that's way down the road somewhere. Resurrection is also a present reality. It's a new place to start the race. Any of you that have ever done track and field, I did that uh, about 100 years ago. In, uh, in junior high, and I still remember them teaching us how to use the starting blocks. You can see a runner here in the, sh- in the photo le- leaping out, exploding out. They sometimes call it exploding. You've got you to rock it out of the blocks. You've got to shoot out from the blocks, explode from the blocks. And the blocks, the new set of blocks is what the resurrection gives us. Whatever you may be facing, You may be facing a race that you think you're not equipped for. Velma and I are from Winnipeg, Canada, and some years ago, long before we moved to England in 2005, there was a street about 100 yards from my house there, our house there, called Wolseley Avenue. And I was out one day just going for my walk, and I saw this um, crew come along, 
um, city workers, and they had this, that was the kind of truck that you use, that they used to paint the lines, the dividing lines in the middle of a road. But they weren't doing the usual, like, yellow or white lines. This was a wider line. It was about that wide, and it was bright electric blue in the middle, smack in the center of Wolseley Avenue. And I thought, what is up with this? Well, shortly afterwards, I found out. We, the city was just getting ready to host the Pan American Games. It's like the Olympics, but it's only the Western Hemisphere. Or, or take part. That electric blue bright line down the middle of Wolseley Avenue went long beyond Wolseley Avenue, and it twisted and turned all over the city. And now you'll understand what it means, because it turned out a friend of mine told me that long blue electric line, electric color line, was exactly 26 miles long. Tell me what it was. What was it? It was a marathon route, so they couldn't get lost if, if they just followed the blue line. I don't know if any of you have ever run anything remotely that long. I certainly have not. But if you're in the blocks and somebody says, by the way, did we tell you this is 26 miles? <laughs> you, if you're like I am, you would think, ay, 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 there ain't no way I can run 26 miles. Now think of a 26-mile run and then think of something that could be going on in your life right now. Financial, emotional, relational, circumstantial, spiritual, psychological, whatever it might be, you're looking at it and you think, I am not up to this. Well, the Lord says you can do it and you'll be able to do it because I am giving you a new set of blocks. You need to crouch. Crouch down. Do you remember Chariots of Fire? How many saw Chariots of Fire years ago? That final scene, you know, where these guys are down in the blocks like this, and my heart was thumping. I wanted so much for, what's his name, Eric Little to win, you know. It was so tense. You could see the perspiration falling down his face onto the gravel, and he's, he's down in the blocks like this. That's us. Now, Stay with me. We need to see what God's doing. You know what those blocks are? Those blocks are the resurrection of Christ in the middle of history. God goes and he picks it up at the end of the age, the trumpet sounding, that angel shouting day. He picks up that power, brings it back into the middle of history. Jesus rises. The angel says, sorry, ladies, you missed them. You can laugh this time. (laughs) And we get new starting blocks. Are you with me? Whatever your race is, it may be a bad report from the doctor. It may be simply, you know, a report is coming and you don't yet know if it'll be bad or good or good or bad. It could be a difficult phone call. Maybe it's one you just had and you're still recovering. Or (laughs) it could be the other kind, the call you know you need to make and you've been postponing it, procrastinating it for six months or something like that. It could be a situation that is simply beyond you. Do you know how many people there are in the Bible (coughs) whose height 
we are told. Grand total of two. One is King Saul. The book of 1 Samuel says he was a head taller than all of the other men in Israel. So I suppose if I've been around, he would have been considerably taller than me. That's one of the men whose height, physical height, we know from Scripture. Who's the other one? It's Goliath. Presumably, Saul had been getting along all his life, being able to intimidate. He just rode on his human charisma, not on the anointing of God, but just strength and getting his own way, being pushy. That's the kind of person he was. And he could get away with it. Even as a little boy, he was the biggest kid in his class. As a young man, he was taller than everybody else. He could intimidate, he could push and shove and and get his way. Well, all of a sudden, someone showed up who was taller. A Goliath situation is what Saul was facing, and we're told he ran and hid in his tent, and he was, quote, full of dismay. A Goliath situation. Maybe, I'm not implying any of us in your character are like King Saul, but you may be facing a Goliath, a situation that is completely beyond you. If that's the case, Luke has good news for us that God has given us a new set of blocks. Do you hear it? Crouch down. Put your feet in the blocks and wait for the starter's pistol. Those blocks have got the power of the risen Christ in them. Second reason the resurrection is good news is this. It redirects our focus. In the Emmaus scene, the risen Jesus meets them, meets the two disciples. We're told, but it's not really explained, that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. It's very intriguing why that is. If we had more time, we could explore that a little bit. But for the moment, just take it. It's a fact of the story. And I'll give you a little bit of a hint. It's some, this is something supernatural. It wasn't because, duh, they didn't get it. it this is the, the verb is, in Greek is passive. Their eyes were, were kept from recognizing him. It's the usual word for to hold back. If I was going to try and go this way, and somebody grabbed me and restrained me, okay, that's the verb that Luke uses to the, their, their vision, their ability to understand. It was held back. To me, it suggests it was God did it, and he did it for a reason. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him, but it was temporary until two things happened. One, this stranger on the road takes them to Bible school. It's called King's School of Theology. You can enroll this morning if you want. He takes them to Bible school. Verse 29, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What I wouldn't give to have the CD on that. He took them to Bible school. He gave them solid, clear teaching 
I don't think it was just a handful of verses, one or two here and there. It's just pulled out at random. He's talking about the whole purpose of God. You know what they said? It's a poignant moment um, because he finds them standing there looking dejected and sad. And he says, what's wrong? Why are you so sad? And they say this, we had hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. We had hopes. There's a poignancy in that. You all know what it's like to look back and say, you know, I had hopes that. We'd hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. In the Bible, the word redeem, usually, maybe not quite always, but in the most cases, in the Old Testament, the, the word redeem or the word redemption have to do with a particular event, the exodus from Egypt. You can jot it down if you want, Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Exodus 6, verse 6, that's God speaking to Moses. And he says, I am coming to redeem my people Israel. And the redeem there means to get them out of Egypt, get them out of slavery, out of the house of bondage. That's the redemption. It's a redemption from suffering. Now, these two fellows, or it might have been a man and a woman, something it was Cleopas and his wife, we don't know for sure. These two disciples, whoever specifically they were, they were right about one thing, although they didn't realize it. Jesus was the one who would redeem Israel. They had hoped it, and now they gave up hoping. Well, they shouldn't have, because he was the, the redeemer. The difference was this. What redemption up to that point in mainline Judaism usually meant was redemption from suffering, leading Israel out of slavery, making bricks. Now God's doing a different kind of redeeming. It's a redeeming, you ready? Through suffering, through Jesus' suffering, even in some sense through the church's own suffering. God's going to work through the suffering of the church, the suffering that is involved with world missions, but of course primarily the suffering of Christ himself. It's a whole different kind of redemption. He interpreted to them, I think it's all of that that's going on. The suffering servant, Isaiah 53, he he explains the scriptures. Redemption from suffering, redemption through it. He interprets the scriptures concerning himself. The second thing he does is this. He takes them to Bible school, but then he breaks the bread. When he picks up that loaf and breaks it, it reminds them of something. It reminds them, of course, of the Last Supper. And the Last Supper was all about Christ's suffering. We don't know what words exactly Jesus spoke here as he broke this loaf, but we know what he said at the Last Supper. He picked up the loaf and he says, you see this, this is my body, and he breaks it in half. What I'm doing to this loaf, what we're doing to this loaf is what's going to happen to me because that's how I'm going to redeem the world. He breaks the bread. Now watch what happens when he breaks the loaf. And their eyes 
were opened and they recognized him. Earlier, we're told their eyes were held back. Their eyes couldn't see and couldn't understand who he was. But now when he breaks the loaf to reconnect that moment at the table with an earlier moment at another table, you see what he's doing? He's saying, look, guys, don't you remember that night in the upper room? It was another loaf. Remember, I was there. You were there. Do you remember? And all of a sudden, they see, maybe they see the nail scars in his wrists as he picks up the loaf and breaks it. Or maybe it's just something supernatural. God grants them revelatory sight, whatever. And their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened because they connected this mysterious stranger on the road with the suffering of Jesus. Understanding that this risen Jesus is the crucified Jesus. The crucified Jesus is now the risen Jesus. You have to have both sides of that. Now, here's a juicy bit. There's lots of them. The moment when he breaks the loaf and their eyes are opened goes back, as we're saying, to the Last Supper. But it goes back a lot farther than that. It goes clean back, and it's a word-for-word quote, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. And their eyes were opened. Of course, it's speaking there of Adam and Eve. They took from the tree of knowledge which they had been forbidden to do. When they ate from that tree, the Bible says, their eyes were opened, and they saw that they were naked. They saw their nakedness. They saw the damage they had done. Now, Luke is a skilled writer. I've said that this book is built like a Swiss watch. And this is one example of that. He could have just said, and all of a sudden they realized it was Jesus. But he didn't say that. He said, and their eyes were opened. He is quoting from the book of Genesis to make a stunning theological point. The disciples' eyes were opened to see the risen Christ. Adam and Eve's eyes were opened to see their own shame, their own guilt, and their, uh, their nakedness. Their, Adam and Eve's eyes were opened to see the damage they had done. The disciples' eyes now, and it's in, the words are exactly the same, are open to see the risen Christ. He, praise his name, is God's answer to the damage we have done. In a couple of weeks, Velma and I are heading back to Canada for a visit. One of the things we're praying for is that we'll be able to get together with a family that that we know over there. Now, I say we know them, although the relationship, the friendship, has been very much tested and damaged. When we moved to England in 2005, we said, as you do when you're moving country, oh, yeah, we'll keep in touch, we'll keep in touch. Well, we didn't, particularly I didn't. It's a single mom and two kids one of which is a teenage boy, and he really kind of liked me, and 
we got along really well. I said I'd keep in touch. Well, I didn't. There's, if I was going to count on one hand the top five things in my life that I regret, this is in the top five. And since then, about a year ago, we tried to reconnect with them a little bit, and we just got the door slammed on our face because they were so hurt that we forgot about them when we moved to another city. God sent Christ to repair the damage done by sin. Let me say that again. God sent Christ to repair the damage done by sin. The ultimate damage done by sin is death. And that's why God picked up some of the power at the last day of resurrection, brought it back into the middle of history, and raised his son from the tomb. He's undoing the damage caused by sin. The main consequence of sin is death. But God brought Jesus back from the tomb. That's a a proof from Scripture. God's committed to repairing the damage we have done. Now, we're going to try and go see these people The earlier attempt we made a while back didn't get very far. We're praying God will get us through the door this time and we can have a good heart-to-heart apologize, which in some ways we've already tried to do. We're asking God to do that. And you know something? I believe we've got backup biblically. We've got the starting blocks. We can run into that race. And we're serving a Savior who comes to reverse what happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve's eyes were open and these people on the road, their eyes were open to see God's answer to our sin. A question to consider, we have to move on and wrap up. What are we preoccupied with? The resurrection, Christ's resurrection, invites us to a new focus. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, and we all with unveiled face Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. Can we commit this morning to cooperating with the Holy Spirit and letting him give us a new focus? That's what happened to those two disciples. Christ broke the loaf and their eyes were opened. And he wants to do that for us this morning. Finally, third reason the resurrection is good news is this. It shows us the scope of the gospel. It is about the physical world. Jesus goes out of his way in this chapter, I mean out of his way, to highlight that he is not a ghost. He's not a spirit. They're not simply having a vision or something like that. This is a physical event. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones. Bones, my goodness. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. What's he doing? He's highlighting something. Namely, his resurrection is physical. Do you ever think about why the stone had to be rolled away from the entrance to the tomb? Because there's a few episodes in his 40 days of resurrection appearances where he all of a sudden just, boom, appears out of nowhere and then disappears. He could do that. So why didn't he just sort of teleport 
like the Harry Potter people, you, you know, out from the tomb, go right through that blooming boulder. Why well, had to move it? There's a reason. God was telling the disciples and telling the whole world, this is a physical event. It wasn't, he wasn't totally limited by physical laws, okay, because he could still go through walls and all the rest of it. Okay, we understand that, but it was physical. So he says, look here, touch my hands. Touch my hands. Look, this it's really me. Ghosts don't have flesh and bones. And he says, by the way, do you have anything to eat? And they give him some broiled fish, and he eats it in front of them. What's going on here? It's this. God is showing us through his risen son that he, God, is committed to the physical world. We have a physical risen Lord. He in himself embodies God's ultimate future plan. Remember what I told you on my 25 trips down to the other end of the platform? He's going to raise us from the grave, and he's going to recreate a renewed, transformed, hear this next word, physical earth. We're going to live in it forever. He's committed to the physical world. And Jesus, the risen Jesus, embodies that in himself. He's going to, this is important, depending on where you get your theology. I'm from North America, and there's lots of great North American Christians, but there's theology over there that think God's going to trash everything at the end. No. He's going to transform the world, not trash it. And my proof or my example of that, my evidence for that is the risen Jesus. He was physical. He's the physical risen Lord. And he in himself is God's endorsement of things like caring for the sick. If you're in one of the caring professions, God endorses that. He endorsed it on the morning and the third day by raising his son physical. Drilling for clean water. Do you ever think about that? That is an amazing thing. We have God's endorsement to support ministries that do that. Handing out shoes to drunks at 3 a.m. Like the street pastors people do. It's care for the physical world. Providing shelter for the homeless. The physical risen Lord. It's not hold on till heaven. It's go out and get busy and fill the earth. I hope we all understand that. Finally, the resurrection of Jesus shows us the scope of the gospel. It's about the physical world. It's also about the nations. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Let me close with a little illustration. Years ago, I went to the great, huge um, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship Missionary Convention. They have it every third year at Christmas. It's at Urbana, Illinois, just, near, just outside Chicago. They get 15,000, 20,000 people at these things. It is thrilling. Now, when I went, it was when I was in college, so it was in the early 70s. And the in thing on college campuses then, it was the hip thing to be, is to say that you were a Marxist. 
And the, the hip thing, the in thing, was to say that you were an internationalist. That was one of the, 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 the hip things. that you, I'm an internationalist. I don't subscribe ultimate loyalty to any single country. I'm an internationalist. I still remember Paul Little. He's since gone to be with the Lord, but he was a missionary statesman. And he challenged this group. I think there was 18,000 of us there. He said, you people are the true internationalists because you serve the Lord of the nations. Who are the real internationalists? It's the people Christ sends. And he sends us to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. By the time these events took place, Jerusalem had been a center in Israel's life, at least from the time of King David. So from him till this is a thousand years. Jerusalem up to that point had mainly been a gathering place. The tribes would come and gather there to worship the Lord. But with these events, with this commissioning, that changes Jerusalem has been the gathering point. Now it's going to be the departure point. Church can be reduced to a gathering point. And it's great for us together. That's why we're here. But church needs to be more than that. It needs to be a departure point as well. The traffic needs to be two-way. To all nations beginning from church. Beginning from Jerusalem. I'll turn it back to Steve in a second. The resurrection, three reasons it's good news. It gives us a new place to start the race. Remember those starting blocks. Whatever race you may be facing, you've got backup. Because the resurrection at the end of the age has come now into the middle of history. It gives you a new way you can run. The resurrection of Jesus redirects our focus. He'll open your eyes not to see your own nakedness, but to see the answer to that nakedness, the risen Christ. The resurrection does a third thing. It shows us the scope of the gospel, that God's committed to the physical world. Go ahead and support ministries that drill wells. And God's committed to the gospel going to all the nations. We are the internationalists. Father, we thank you for the resurrection, for the hope, and there's something thrilling and exciting in all of this. We pray you'd make this event real for us. Make it real this afternoon, real tomorrow morning. If we're struggling to think, thinking I just still don't feel like I get it, it's okay. We ask for the Holy Spirit to come and be our teacher. We pray that he is risen would be our battle cry. In Jesus' name, for his honor, amen. Amen.